You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Lucy Kellison. And I'm Ruth Flegman. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. Later in the program, the Monroe County Sheriff's Office gave a presentation on the poor conditions of the current jail. Plus, local residents spoke out against a new jail during public comment. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half an hour, Lil Bub's Lil Show, done in collaboration between the WFHB Local News and Lil Bub's Big Fund. But first, your local headlines. On January 18th at the Monroe County Commissioner's meeting, Health Department Director Lori Kelly gave an update on COVID-19 levels in the community. Uh, So Indiana is continuing to experience high levels of respiratory illnesses. Um, RSV cases are declining. State influenza activity is currently noted as moderate. And Monroe County has returned to a low COVID-19 community level. We are still seeing rising cases of the XBB 1.5 variant. And flu and COVID-19 vaccines are still available at the public health clinic. You can call 812-353-3244 for an appointment. The commissioners heard from Assistant Director of the Planning Department and Flood Plan Administrator Tammy Bierman, who asked the commissioners to approve an amendment to Zoning Chapter 803. She said the amendment would clarify the new manufactured home replacement requirements. Good morning, commissioners. Um, Yes, we're presenting um, Chapter 803 text amendments. Um, These are just technical fixes, such as like amending the language to legal pre-existing non-conforming structures, um, making sure that they comply with the requirements of Chapter 808, which is our flood damage prevention chapter. Um, This is kind of required for us to stay in the National Flood Insurance Program. And so we want to make sure that if a house is damaged um, in one of those types of areas, that we are compliant um, with the state requirements and federal requirements. Um, Additionally, we're adding text uh, to do, um, to remove a reference in to Chapter 833, which is the fringe, uh, it's a, old city of Bloomington um, ordinance language that we would like to remove um, so that when someone goes to remove and replace a manufactured home or a mobile home, that they are replacing it with a manufactured home. Um, Mobile homes can only be replaced technically within a mobile home park at this point due to safety standards. Um, So we're just kind of cleaning up the language of chapter 803. During public comment on the ordinance, Monroe County resident and Redevelopment Commission member Randy Cassidy asked the county to increase their public outreach about the flood plans and encourage the county to identify and modify the public personally. In regards to the aspect of the text amendments and making changes accordingly, 
when we're looking at this situation, staying in the National Flood Insurance Program for those individuals that have had homes in there for a significant period of time and that's where they live, it's imperative that they have the ability to be in the flood insurance programs. There's additional items that have been added in which can make it a constraint on the homeowners that live and have purchased these. And if something comes in during a natural disaster, the time frame to be able to help them to get back as uh, Tammy, being the floodplain administrator in Monroe County knows, there's a certain area that is defined according as the flood hazard area, also as the special flood hazard area. The individuals that are in those areas realistically may not even know they are there. And the honest of putting this on the individual to say how, as we say, very few people even look at the meetings. They know, but the honest is on them to find out. In order to try to be the best in the public aspect, would it not be to a benefit to identify which homes they are and let those property owners know exactly and what the circumstances are? Because by adding additional text amendment, putting it where nothing can be done, an individual that happens to be in those situations, they don't even know. And flooding is something that has occurred. I mean. I'm sure that Colton Bow, when he went down Dodds, did not intend on dying that night when the flood came through. So the identification of these and being able to allow them to be rebuilt or moved into the safety is paramount for the public safety and for the individuals in our county. Because the last thing we want to do is just, and I'll use May's greenhouse as an example. I don't know all the circumstances, but I know given the area, they're still damaged and a truck ran off of them. So just those aspects of let's identify those individuals before we pass something that then puts the honest on those individuals that are probably least prepared to address it at the time it happens because a significant amount of these people would be out of a home and the main objective is get it repaired. And if it goes through a process, so I'm sorry, you can't rebuild, you can't do this. It'll take nine to 12 months. We just dislocate those that already have a home that has a problem. So I appreciate your time and consideration. Thank you. Commissioner Lee Jones said that some properties have been experiencing flooding due to development further upstream. Yes, I would like to point out that frequently people have located in areas that did not flood and seemed perfectly safe. And then as more and more development occurred upstream from them, they started flooding. So in a way, I, I understand that there's a difference between just the areas that have started flooding due to development and the flood hazard plain. But it does seem unfortunate that something that people did not ask for ever could cause them to actually lose their homes. Commissioner Julie Thomas commented on the ordinance as well. Um, I appreciate uh, the point that Commissioner Jones just made. Um, some of this is about climate change, but um, a lot of this is also about development elsewhere, uh, even development in the city. Um, and we're getting stormwater runoff that's not contained appropriately from, from the city. So um, this is a very serious topic, and um, I appreciate all the hard work uh, Ms. Bierman has put in so far to um, um, her research and ensuring that this code gets updated. 
the commissioners unanimously approved the amendment to the ordinance. Following the vote, Beerman gave a presentation on the National Flood Insurance Program. Um, so the National Flood Insurance Program participation in this is based upon an agreement between local communities and the federal government that states that if a community will implement and enforce measures to reduce future flood risk to new construction in special flood hazard areas, the federal government will make flood insurance available within the community as a financial protection against flood losses. And this is kind of a three-arm approach. Um, there are special flood hazard area maps that are provided. Um, in fact, the state of Indiana is uh, <coughs> very much um, into updating these maps, and I'll get into that in a moment. The other prong of this uh, is the availability of flood insurance for these areas, and then also regulations, which is what I'm mostly involved in as floodplain administrator for Monroe County, uh, and this deals with permitting and enforcement. Um, and so this diagram below, just as a review of what a flood hazard area is, it's the considered the 1% annual chance floodplain. Um, they used to call this the 100-year floodplain, but we're seeing sometimes um, this is occurring more than within that time frame. So um, there are kind of delineated between two portions. There's the regulatory floodway. That any development within that area would require both state and local floodplain permits. And then there's the fringe areas, um, which aren't quite as considered as dangerous. Those would only require a local flood development permit. Um, to be able to do some development within there. Beerman shared how residents can figure out if their property is in a floodplain and walked through how to use Elevate to see both FEMA and DNR flood maps. Um, so how do you know if you're in a floodplain or not? Um, I was going to show two different resources. One of them is directly through our Monroe County um, uh, government site. And uh, we do have a GIS division, and you can look for this icon called Elevate. You do have to create a login um, when doing, you know, entering into this site. I'm going to use the one that I already had pulled up earlier. Oh, maybe not. Um, so for this, um, hopefully you have like the floodplains are are pulled up already, but you can do this. Um, by tapping on this edit map contents, going to data layers, and you can scroll through until you find the different flood maps. Um, and you can toggle them on and off. So the FEMA flood zones, this is more for if you are concerned about uh, a structure that needs a federally backed mortgage or, or loan, um, that's the map that you would want to utilize to see if you're triggered under that. Uh, for permitting purposes, we use the DNR best available flood map. And I was going to use one property. You can search your address within here. And I was going to use um, the Flatwoods Road property, which is owned by the county commissioners and has a park, a quite lovely park. And you will see that um, there are some flood zones that are within here. This turquoise part would require state and local permits both. The light green part would just require local permits. Beerman emphasised that although these maps are informative, it doesn't mean that other land won't flood. She also said that the number of flood insurance policies have gone down in Monroe County. 
And I will say that um, just because you may be outside of a special flood hazard area, it doesn't mean your property can't flood. There, these maps are very specific to just a certain rainfall and a certain amount of time, but we all know that we can have those larger events, the 500,000 uh, year event. Um, we refer to them more as the point zero two percent chance flood. Um, in any case, I have a summary of something that I'm sent every year. Uh, we currently have 90 flood insurance policies. 26 of those are in a zone A. Uh, kind of gives a summary of what the total premiums are and total coverages for those policies and how many claims. So we get this every year. I did compare it with last year and numbers are down. So, so we don't, we aren't holding as many um, flood insurance policies. So I just wanted to throw that out there. That maybe we do need to have a little bit more outreach um, and educate realtors and, and, and people uh, as to the benefits of, you know, perhaps getting into the flood insurance program. Lastly, Beerman explained more about the floodplain development permits. Um, and then finally, that third arm that I was talking about with regulations and, and whatnot, um, we do have a flood development permit. Um, if you're in that special like floodway designation, you need to have your state permit in place before uh, you apply for a local permit. Those are required. Um, and I just wanted to go over the definition of development. Um, any development within one of these special flood hazard areas, um, it just doesn't refer to just structures. This could be, you know, installing a driveway or storing materials, putting up a fence. All of these things need to be reviewed to make sure that you're not going to be impacting uh, any neighboring properties in a negative way. For more information, Beerman said residents can reach out to her with any questions. Commissioner Julie Thomas recommended that residents consider getting flood insurance and shared some personal experience she has had. Well, I, I do recommend that anyone who lives in an area that's prone to flooding, um, whether it's um, on a creek or near a creek or in an area like that, that they consider getting flood insurance. About 15 years ago, we had a microburst in the summer. It was first week of June. I remember that. And um, our neighborhood flooded terribly. We had um, people trapped. We had uh, my neighbor across the street lost um, a barn. Um, the water wasn't deep, but it was moving fast. And uh, they lost a barn. Um, and we were the only one in our neighborhood that had flood insurance. And we're the only ones that didn't have any damage. <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's serious stuff. And um, I know we lost a couple bridges, and uh, it, it was it was pretty impressive to see it. Uh, so I I do I do recommend that folks consider it, um, especially. Uh, I'm hopeful that there's going to be a um, more revisions to the cost because it is it is pretty high um, uh, to make it more affordable for folks um, because your regular homeowners insurance, renters insurance will not cover you in a flood. So um, just want to put the word out. And I do want to thank Ms. Bierman for her hard work and uh, for getting this out. And I do encourage uh, you to record something on your PowerPoint and we can put it on our website and folks can can uh, see what's going on and can can look at those maps and and make good decisions for their for themselves.
the next Monroe County Commissioners meeting will be held on January 25th. During the January 23rd meeting of the Community Justice Response Committee, the Monroe County Sheriff's Office gave a presentation on the conditions of the current jail. Monroe County Deputy Chief Phil Parker showed images of what the jail looks like now. So these are the, this is the holding cell for people who have recently been arrested. These people have not been convicted of a crime. They were probably brought in hours before I took this picture. And they're being held in a cell before they're moved to, before they're classified and moved to a general population. Or more than likely, um, uh, released as per the, the judge's directive. So, you know, you, what have, we have nine individuals in here at this point. It's hard to see them all. Um, but what we're going to do is I just wanted to show you this photograph of, of where they're laying. As you can see, they're laying on the, con the concrete floor. They're laying on concrete benches. There are no pillows. There are no blankets. There are no anything. The, these people are on the concrete. If we can move to the, to the next photo. This is where we've zoomed in. This is what I wanted to show you. They're using Dixie cups for pillows here. Um, I've showed this photograph to three people, and every time I've showed this photograph, as we zoomed in on, so I got gasps of how is that possible? So I want you to think about, you know, we these these individuals laying on this cold floor, and this is what they were had to resort to. Um, if you'll see the floor drain there on the picture on the on the left there, when I went in there, that floor drain was full of urine. It smelled very strongly because uh, we there were some issues with the toilets and inmates do what they do sometimes, but that had not been cleaned and it was it was it was a very strong odor of urine emanating from that. Uh, I talked to three corrections officers and said what why 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 is this this way? And basically, you know, no fault of their own. I, I, I cannot emphasize this enough. They, they only can do what they were trained to do. They said, it's always been this way. It's always been this way. Chief Deputy Parker asked three correction officers why the conditions are so poor inside the jail. Apart from the, it's always been this way comment, Parker explained. Here's what they told me, too, that as these people were in here, they would crowd the doors and they would ask for toilet paper. So they would hand out toilet paper to them. Well, what they would do is they'd take that toilet paper and they would roll it up into small little pads. And then they would take these toilet paper pads and put them under their hip bones and under their elbows and under their ankles and under their knees to get some relief from that, from that floor. Because if you go lay on the concrete floor, you're, gonna, that's, that, you're going to start experiencing pain pretty quickly. Downside of that is once you shift, they go in there and they would clean out the cell. Guess what? We sweep it out, there go all their pads, and we start this process over again to try to relief, to get some relief from this. What I was told is also that um, sometimes in the past, these people have been in here for days, days laying here on these floors. The next thing is they said they had about four to five incidents of use of force because as you know when people go through those things it, it can it can cause some issues and that these holding cells is where they had the, the most use of force incidents in these cells. Chief Deputy Parker said that people in holding cells are now issued a mat and a blanket. He said the holding cell has been since clean and repainted. Jail Commander Kyle Gibbons said that this small improvement was a necessary step in creating a more livable facility for people who are booked into the jail. 
Parker reiterated, saying that people placed in the jail are in their care and custody and deserve more humane treatment. As you guys have found through going to other facilities and, and through conversation, we found out that the intake is one of the most important aspects of any facility. By just changing their arrival, just talking to the inmates are night and day. They're open to now having a conversation and disclosing some things that they're going through. They feel comfortable where they're not laying on the frozen floor, literally freezing. And, and they're even open to having those conversations. So it, it was important for us to streamline that process, not just for the law enforcement officers coming in, not just for the staff, for the people. I mean, we call them inmates, we call them residents. We, we have all these different terms we use, but they're just people. They're people that make mistakes sometimes. They're people that come in on a, a simple charge of disorderly conduct and never come back. And to be exposed to that, I, that was one of the first things that Sheriff talked to me about. And, and, and I want to be very clear on this too. Some of these people in our facility are there on very, very violent, I mean, crimes that we, we don't walk, walking around amongst us. We, we have to acknowledge that part, whether we agree how we do it or whatever, but there are some very violent people in this facility, but again, they're still people. And once we, they're in our care and custody. So it's, it's up to us, I believe, to no matter what brought them there, that while they're in our care and custody, that we, we have certain obligations to them to, to bring some humanity to this. The presentation included chilling photographs and videos of how subpar the conditions are inside the facility. Foul water, a pile of debris, and offensive graffiti were shown as evidence of the cruel state of the jail at the present moment. Sheriff Ruben Marte said he has been accused of acting too quickly on the new jail initiative. He pointed to graffiti inside the facility that read, quote, no N-words, end quote. One of the instructions that I gave to our team is that we got to move fast. And I have to say, I've been accused of that. And I hope people understand why I'm moving so fast, because when I'm told you're moving too fast, I take an issue to that. I truly do. Because when I see that word, I took it personal. Very personal. Because the way I, if you see me, I'm a black male, Latino male. And when I see something like that, that is throughout the jail, I cannot move slow. But I was not given a chance to, to explain to people why I cannot move slow. That's the reason why. Why I want to be able to paint and clean, that's the reason why. Why I'm taking it personal, that's the reason why. So... I cannot do this by myself. I need support. Simple as that, I need support. Because that verbiage right there, combined with the swastika, combined with the anarchy, we have a recipe that could really take off in that jail at any given time. And it's not fair to the staff members in there that are doing the very best they can with the little that they have right now. And, and when I say to you, they're working very hard, I mean they're working very hard. I asked them to do that and they're doing it. But it's not fair to them and all the residents that live in that establishment not to have it clean. I can't explain to you how I felt that Monroe County, a staff member in Monroe County, had to go to another county and borrow their equipment. We did it because we needed to get the stuff done now. I didn't have the luxury of people telling me you're moving too fast. And or 
this is another way it's done. I will follow the proper, the proper procedures that you want me to follow. I have no problem with that. But you have to understand from my point of view, from our lens, now that you see this, quite frankly, it's just not acceptable. During public comment, Monroe County resident Seth Munchler said he does not believe that incarceration is the answer to the problems facing the county. Munchler said that the focus should be on treatment and rehabilitation. He expressed frustration at the Monroe County Commissioners, which he perceived as hindering the process of community dialogue in the jail planning effort. He called on Commissioner Lee Jones to be removed as chair of the committee. I have become struggled in this issue because I feel strongly that incarceration is not the answer to our community's problems, and I want to see a radical shift towards treatment, compassion, empathy, and understanding that systemic issues and generational trauma creates cycles of incarceration that are harmful to the individual and the community. In short, I believe in care, not cages. I believe that many of the members of this advisory committee share my viewpoints, and although we may differ on some of the specific details and paths towards that, I truly believe some of you and I share the same end goal. I don't see that goal being worked towards, though, and not for the lack of effort of county council members, judges, and their colleagues, but because, to put it bluntly, because of the county commissioners. And it is so disheartening to see the conversation shift from how to affect real change in our community to Commissioner Jones getting defensive yet again and Commissioner Thomas talking about staying in our lanes. I hope you see my conflict here. I want to talk about the real issues, but I feel like I can't stay silent. I want to talk less about the not cages half, and I want to focus on the goals of investing in care in our community. But I felt forced to have all of my energy go towards just trying to stop this metaphorical train from derailing. In my opinion, the commissioners have made it apparent that they are set on hindering process towards the aforementioned shared goals. Instead, they for some reason have developed a tunnel vision on building a new jail way outside of town, despite the recommendations of the reports commissioned by the county, despite community input, and despite this very advisory body asking them to slow down and reconsider. So what do we do? To start, I am calling for the removal of Commissioner Jones as chair of this committee, and that position be given to a member other than a county commissioner. It is clear to me that different leadership is required. The health department and judges' voices, excuse me, as we know, the county commissioners are planning on Wednesday to ratify an amendment to Moreau County Code Chapter 457, which outlines the membership of this committee and are removing the representative from the health department as well as two judges. The health department and judges' voices are crucial, but I fear you only see them as dissenting voices to Commissioner Jones and Thomas's runaway train. I see this as a squashing of democratic discourse and am simply offended. As such, I am calling for the amendment to Chapter 457 to not be ratified as written. These actions most likely won't solve all the problems this committee is having, but my hope is that with some changes around here, we, and I say we because I see the public having a seat at this table as well, with some changes around here, we can stop fighting and start to make some changes out there. Thank you. The Community Justice Response Committee will meet next in a hybrid capacity at 4.30pm on Monday, February 6th. Up next, Little Bub's Little Show, done in collaboration between the WFHB Local News and Little Bub's Big Fund. We now turn to that segment.
Welcome to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a weekly co-production from WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We highlight adoptable animals with special needs in South Central Indiana and spotlight topics to promote human animal welfare. First, here's today's featured animal. Today, we are highlighting three cats currently residing at the City of Bloomington Animal Shelter, Moon, Spider, and Green Eggs. Each of these cats is FIV positive, meaning they have feline immunodeficiency virus. Moon is a sweetheart who wants nothing more than to cuddle. This beautiful little girl has black fur, green eyes, and canines that would put a vampire to shame. She is a little over a year old and has a ton of love to give. Spider is a feline of the shy variety. He greets strangers with a hiss and a hide, but as soon as he gets a pet, he melts like butter. His foster mom says that he sought out affection after only a day with her. Spider could easily live happily with other FIV positive cats. Green Eggs is a sweet cat who would do well in a quiet home with FIV positive cats. He is shy but social with people and likes to be petted. Give him ample time to adjust and he will be an affectionate house cat. If you're interested in adopting today's featured pet, you can learn more at our websites goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. You're listening to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production of WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We now turn to this week's featured topic. What exactly is feline immunodeficiency virus? According to the Cornell Feline Health Center, FIV is one of the most common infectious diseases of cats. FIV attacks the immune system, leaving a cat vulnerable to many other secondary infections. There is no cure for FIV, but cats with FIV commonly live average lifespans. FIV is primarily transmitted through bite wounds from an infected cat. Casual, non-aggressive contact is not considered a major transmission risk. Rarely, an infected mother may transmit the infection to her kittens. Unneutered male cats with outdoor access, especially those who are likely to fight with other cats, are at the greatest risk for FIV infection. Although FIV is similar to HIV and causes disease similar to AIDS in humans, It is a very species-specific virus that only infects felines. FIV is not linked to disease in humans. To diagnose FIV, blood samples are examined for the presence of the antibodies, which can be drawn in a veterinarian's office. There is currently no vaccine commercially available in North America to protect against FIV. The best way to reduce risk is to limit contact with cats who may be infected with the disease 
by keeping cats indoors and testing all cats within the household. For a healthy cat diagnosed with FIV, management goals include reducing their risk of acquiring secondary infections and preventing the spread of FIV to other cats. Spaying and neutering eliminate the risk of spreading FIV to kittens or through mating. Uncooked food, such as raw meat and eggs or unpasteurized dairy products, should be avoided to minimize the risk of foodborne infections. Wellness visits for FIV-positive cats should be scheduled at least every six months. Because most illness in FIV-positive cats result from secondary infections, it is very important that cats be promptly evaluated and treated when any signs of illness occur. Thank you for tuning in to Lil Bub's Lil Show on WFHB, produced in partnership with Lil Bub's Big Fund. For more info on today's featured animal and topic, find us online at goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specialising in solar hot water, solar electricity and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noelle Herhushki-Snyder and partners with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Cade Young. Lil Bob's Lil Show is produced by Christine Brackenhoff and Stacey Brodowski. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and The Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Ruth Flegman. And I'm Lucy Kellison. Thank you for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for a heavyweight, a reinvestigation into the disappearance of Joseph Smedley, coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at wfhb.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. 
feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, longer.